Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, March 8th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, snacking. It's what we do as Americans, right? I mean, we are uh, so good at that. According to the website Statista.com, in 2017, Americans spent over $90 billion just for snacks. Uh, Salty snacks led the charge with $27.5 billion in sales, followed by candy, just under $21 billion. Cheese was third, $17 billion, uh, followed by cookies, crackers, ice cream, and nuts in that order. In fact, they estimate that in 2020, we will outpace the second closest country in snack spending by over $60 billion this year. Like, go us, right? Um, But you know what they say, right? Next to lunch, dinner, uh, and breakfast, major snacking is the most important meal of the day. Or maybe that's not exactly what they say. But you know there is this human condition, right? Uh, What happens to us when uh, we haven't been utilizing snacking to its fullest potential? And that is called being hangry. Uh, Hangry, actually, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, defines us as being irritable or angry because of hunger. And at least one product, Snickers, has launched an entire marketing campaign based on this idea, right? In fact, I found this week when I was researching all the Snickers commercials on YouTube, there's one that was released in England that I had never seen. Let's watch. For those listening at home, uh, go to YouTube and Google Snickers and Mr. Bean. It's hilarious. Isn't that good? Yeah. So look at this interesting tidbit, though, that I found in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary at the bottom. The first known use of the word hangry was used in 1918. Is that surprising to you? You thought it was a more modern word? Yeah, no, not me. You know why? Because of this passage. Mark 11, verse 12 to 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hangry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat your fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Like, that's the definition of hangry, isn't it, right? When, when your uh, hungriness affects how you relate to others. Like, here, Jesus, have a Snickers, because you're just not really the son of God when you're hungry. <clears throat> Welcome to the second week in the season of Lent. Uh, a series is entitled The End. And each week during these six weeks leading up to Easter, we'll be looking at a different story from the end week of Jesus' life. The six weeks of Lent plus Easter Sunday will take us day by day. Each week we get a different day in the seven days of the end of Jesus' life. And I've chosen the Gospel of Mark uh, to be the gospel by which we follow Jesus during Holy Week. Mark was the first of the four gospels written, and in general, Mark doesn't uh, mince words, right? It's the shortest of the gospels. He's short and to the point, says what he needs to say, and then moves on to the next event. We began this series last week by looking at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 
The humility of Jesus' coming in on a donkey was such a sharp contrast to the, how the Roman governor would have entered with all the pomp and circumstances and the, uh, the stallions and the military might and the swords and the boots and, and everything. Jesus offered a different type of leader. Mark tells us that at the end of that first day of Jesus' last week, in verse 11 of chapter 11, that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he knows what he's doing. He comes to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. But this first day, Sunday, was not the day to do what he needed to do. So he went back and spent the night in Bethany with his disciples the following day, Monday, which is what we're looking at today, is when everything would start to go down. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now, Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus was hungry. Like, did he just wake up late and he missed breakfast with the disciples? Uh, did his hosts in Bethany forget to provide even a basic yogurt, some cold cereal, maybe a nice orange? I mean, at least bagels and locks, right, for Jesus? No, we don't know why he's hungry that morning. Only him, not the disciples. But the result is his hangriness. Verse 13. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus and the boys are on their way. Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree uh, with leaves. He thinks to himself, there is nothing like a fig newton for breakfast, right? Uh, a fresh fig. I'm so hungry. It's going to be great. He goes there. He looks it over. Not a single fig can be found. Major bummer. And then Mark throws Jesus under the bus by telling us it wasn't even the season for figs. Last week we discovered that Jesus and disciples were coming in Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. And uh, Passover was that time when they remembered that God had, had rescued them out of slavery and captivity in Egypt and eventually brought them into the promised land. Well, the Jewish calendar... Uh, for Passover would be in the month of Nisan. And that for us would be March or April, like right about this time of the year now. Biblical scholar M. Eugene Boring in his New Testament library commentary notes that figs in the Middle East, they don't even start fruiting until the end of May at the very earliest. So if he's coming during Passover, even if it's late April, He's still a month away from when the, the fig trees are going to start to producing figs. And all the disciples knew that. Chances all, all of Mark's community knew that as well. But Mark decides there may be people down the road reading my little book that don't know that it's not the season for figs. So he put that little caveat in there. Verse 14. And Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So here, here's this poor fig tree just minding its own business, growing leaves, not producing fruit because it's only March and April. And Jesus, for no reason, seems to curse it. What is up with that? Dr. Boring notes that this passage has actually bothered tr and troubled uh, commentators for centuries. For starters, it's the only uh, miracle story of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. It's also the only destructive miracle 
that Jesus does throughout all of the Gospels. It's the only miracle performed on an impersonal object rather than on a person, uh, to a person, or for a person. And it just seems a bit out of character for Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, like, he totally overreacted. One of the books that I'm using uh, quite a bit in preparing for the series is called The Last Week by John Dominic Croson and Marcus J. Borg. And, and they believe that Mark wants us to read the story of Jesus and the fig tree together with the story of Jesus cleansing the temple that we had read for us just a few moments ago. They're like, like two peas in a pod, if you will. In fact, R. Alan Culpepper, in his commentary uh, on, on Mark in the Smith and Helwes series, he calls it a typical Markan sandwich, like a sandwich made by the author Mark. This is letter, literary technique that's used that Mark takes two stories and he puts them next to each other because he wants us to see each story in relation to the other, that they don't stand alone. So we could just chalk this up to Jesus being human, having a bad morning, being especially hangry that day, or instead of reading it as a literal story, it can be a symbolic story, a story to help us better understand what's about to take place next. And that's the approach that I would like us to take this morning. And Jesus is following in Israel's tradition of the great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, to name just a few, who often are given object lessons by God to do something or to use an item so that the people will get the message that's about to come afterwards. Like when Jeremiah, when God calls him to go to the potter's house and to watch uh, this artisan create this, some kind of pottery, and midway through, the potter realizes, no, it's not becoming what I want, and so the potter takes it off the wheel, crushes it, and begins to spin it all over. And then Jeremiah's message to the people is, God says, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't change, I'm going to take you, rework you, and start from the ground up to make you new again. So let's uh, leave the fig tree alone for a while and follow Jesus to the temple. Verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple. Now, the night before, we had heard that Jesus came to Jerusalem. He went into the temple, looked around, but then he left. So he's back on Monday morning and he's ready to take action. Now, we need to remember that the temple in Jerusalem was built by King Solomon, who was King David's son. It was first built around the 10th century BCE, before the Christian era. It was destroyed in 586 BCE by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And then after 70 years in captivity, uh, the exiles were allowed to come back to Jerusalem and they began to rebuild the, the wall surrounding Jerusalem and eventually, over time, to rebuild the temple itself. That would be during the period of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, uh, the books from the Old Testament. Now, by the time we get to Jesus in the first century CE... King Herod the Great and his successors had been engaged on an uh, enlarging uh, project, building up the temple, increasing its footprint, and now the whole temple, what you see there, would have been 35 acres within the walls. And this is a huge, huge space. The temple had become the social, cultural, and religious center of life for the people of Israel, and this large outer area that you see all along the edges, this was called the Court of the Gentiles. 
All people were welcome, whether you were Jewish or not. You could come and be in this big open space. And then with increasing degrees of holiness, uh, the successive inner courts included a place for the Jewish women, called the Court of Women, for the Jewish men, called the Court of Men, and then closer to the center of the temple was the Court of the Priests, where the priests could go, and inside the Court of the Priests was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and only one priest could go in there once a day. So you can see this gradation of how everyone is welcome, and then the Jewish women and the men, and all the way. There was a place for everyone. Mark eleven fifteen and 16. Then they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, this story is traditionally known as the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. In fact, there's even a heading in our NRSV Bible if you were following along. And I used to think that Jesus did this because he was upset that the, that the temple had become like a, a swap meet for the people and that they had lost sight of what it meant to be there in prayer. But as I was researching this week, I discovered that's not exactly the case. I remember me mentioning this big area, right, the court of the Gentiles. This is where uh, everything was happening uh, today in our passage with Jesus. Let me tell you what was going on on a typical day in that court of the Gentiles. The buying and selling was for animals that would be used for sacrifice at the temple. And that could happen every day, but especially during the season of Passover, a lot of people were coming. Different passages in the Old Testament would say, if you have this uh, problem or concern, here's the animal that you need to sacrifice, whether it's from uh, an ox or a cow or a goat or sheep to doves, whatever it may be, the different season and the different occasion warranted different animals. And when worshipers came to Passover, they would uh, predominantly use uh, sheep, but if you were very poor, you could also offer up doves instead. The Jewish historian Josephus records that in the year 66 uh, CE, so after Jesus, Anno Domini, year 66, at Passover, it's estimated that worshipers required an estimated 255,600 lambs during this, what is that, about a two-week period. I mean, that is a lot of livestock. R. Alan Culpepper, in his commentary, Mark, notes that the blood uh, from all of these sacrifices would have flowed from the altar in such quantity that it was carried by uh, by a channel to two holes, like almost like narrow nostrils, in the southwest corner of the temple wall. And from those openings, it would pour down into the Kidron Valley, where it was collected and sold to gardeners and farmers as fertilizer. So unless a pilgrim lived close to Jerusalem and they could bring their own animal, if they're traveling from a distance, it's not practical to bring the sheep or whatever you're having. So they would come to the temple and they would need to buy some of these animals so that they then could offer what God required of them for Passover. Good thing they had a big space now that Herod had rebuilt the temple. There was a lot of room. And this wasn't unique to Judaism. It says that all throughout the the Mediterranean, uh, temples of various religions would also have this same thing, that people could come and they could buy whatever animals they need in order to make 
the appropriate sacrifices. Now, the money changers were required because worshipers, not only in giving financial offerings, they were required to make a, uh, a temple tax every year. And many uh, of the monetary coins had images of the Roman emperor or of gods from other countries. And so the Jewish leader said, no, no, you can't give God a coin that has the emperor who claims to be the son of God or, or any other gods to God. God would be offended. So from uh, 125 BCE to 66 CE, there was a special Jewish coin called the Tyrian silver shekel. And uh, before MasterCard or Visa, this was the preferred method of payment. You would come and you would exchange what the coins from whatever country uh, you were from and get the Tyrian shekel, and then you could make that as an offering to God. That also took place out in the court of the Gentiles. Borgen Crossan comment that the money changers and sellers were perfectly legitimate and absolutely necessary for the temple's normal functioning. So, if that is the case, why is Jesus getting so upset? Like, don't tell me it's more of this hangriness now carrying over to the temple. Short answer, no, it's not. Long answer, let's go to the book of Jeremiah. Or sorry, let's look ahead uh, before we go to Jeremiah. Mark eleven seventeen. Jesus was teaching and saying, this is right after overturning the money changers, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, like I just mentioned, we have to go back to Jeremiah chapter 7 to see what Jesus was referring to. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house at the temple and proclaim there this word, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place. And a few verses later... God says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. So this is what Jesus is referring to when he quotes that passage from Jeremiah saying, what have you, you've made my house a, a den of robbers. You see, in Jeremiah's time, God was chastising people for, for not treating each other the way that God wanted him to, the, the way that God had, had sent the prophets to remind them about this is how you should care for one another, care for the poor, reach out to the widows, welcome the immigrants and the refugees. Basically, you're only focused on looking out for number one, and God says you're missing what it means to be in community, to genuinely love your brothers and sisters. And then they come to temple for worship, they make their sacrifices, they offer their coins, and they think, okay, I'm totally good. Whatever happened during the week doesn't matter because I've done my duty. I've showed up, I've made an appearance. And Jesus is saying, robbery wasn't happening in the temple. No, the robbery was happening as they were robbing each other of the respect and the dignity they should have. And then they're coming back into the temple thinking that they're all good and fine. And that became the den of robbers. And God called them out in Jeremiah. Now, it wasn't the first time I could list a number of passages in the Hebrew Scriptures where God uh, was so fed up 
uh, about what they did during their worship time and what they weren't doing the rest of the week. Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Hosea 6.6, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, 6 to 8, with what shall he come before the Lord? With burnt offerings? Thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? With my firstborn? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Isaiah chapter 1, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. You see, offerings and sacrifices weren't a problem for Jesus. It wasn't even a problem that they were coming to pray and exchanging their money so that they could make an offering to God. All of that was good. The problem was that their actions outside of the temple had no reflection with what they said they were doing when they came inside the temple. Coming to church and giving your money is not a get-out-of-hell-free card in the eyes of God. That's what Jesus had a problem with, that the people of Israel were supposed to be like a ripe fig tree full of the fruit that God had created them to grow and produce, but instead they were all leaves and no figs. So Jesus overturned the temple and he cursed the fig tree. That's how you make a Markin sandwich. And, of course, how do you think the religious leaders responded to this uh, incident? Verse 18. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Commentator R.C.H. Lenski, in his book on Mark notes that whenever these two groups are mentioned, chief priests and scribes, make a note in your head, that's a specific group known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the supreme court of Israel. It was 70 men and the chief priest. And they would meet in Jesus's day every day inside the temple, except for Sabbath and high holidays. So they were the ones who witnessed Jesus' actions and his uh, hearkening back to Jeremiah chapter 7. And they didn't like it one bit. In fact, they began a set of motions that would lead to Jesus' death on the cross. Lenski estimates that the Sanhedrin were afraid that Jesus would sway the people away from their own authority. And they saw Jesus as a dangerous rival who must be stopped at all costs. And this is what's going to propel us through Friday and Calvary. Having done what he came to do, Jesus leaves the temple with his disciples for the night. Borgenkrossen remarked that Jesus had symbolically shut down the temple. The ultimate mic drop happened that day. He called the people to account for not having lived their lives the way that God wanted them to. They hadn't produced the fruit that a life of justice, righteousness, and compassion would warrant. That they were not living the way God had told them over and over and over again that they should. Now, I told you earlier that each Sunday in Lent, we're going to be looking at a different day. And I have to uh, break that for just a minute to go a little bit past 
this Monday. Verse 20. In the morning, so now we're on day three of Jesus' last week, that Tuesday. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus goes on to talk about prayer and and faith, but I, I want us to stay with the fig tree. Remember I told you that Mark was creating this Mark and Sandwich, right? The, the fig tree story and the cleansing of the temple. We need to see them paired together. So Jesus begins Monday by seeing a fig tree that has leaves but has no figs. He was hungry. He was disappointed. He cursed the tree for being unfruitful. And then he entered the temple in Jerusalem, hoping to see the fruitfulness of a people who lived out their faith seven days a week. Instead, he turns over the tables of a fruitless temple where the people had long since ceased for genuinely caring for one another the way that God required of them. And so he shut down the temple just as the fig tree withered away under Jesus' command. But there's one more part, one more event that makes all of this come into focus. Scholars believe the Gospel of Mark was written around 70 A.D., at a very critical time in Israel's history. Frustrated of having to live under Roman authority for so long, some of the Jews began to try to break away and to kick out the Roman occupiers. In fact, many people were hoping that Jesus would do this as the Messiah, that he would bring freedom to Israel, that no longer would they be under the thumb of the emperor. Over time, a group known as the Zealots intentionally used guerrilla warfare tactics to not only kill Roman soldiers, but also any Jewish uh, person who sympathized with Rome. In 70 AD, Rome came in and completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem, including burning the temple down to the ground. Mark's community knew this. They experienced it. They lived through it. So when Mark writes about Jesus cursing the fig tree and cleansing or shutting down the temple, the disciples then the next day see uh, uh, that same fig tree withered to the ground. Mark's community is going, yeah, we see that with the church that, or with the, the temple that has already been burned to the ground. Jesus knew that even in his day, the temple was filled with activity, but it bore no signs of holiness, righteousness, and justice. So in the eyes of God, it was already dead like a fig tree without figs. It no longer fulfilled the purpose that God intended for it. So what about us? We always have to connect the story back to our lives. What about us here at Palmdale United Methodist Church where we say every Sunday that we are inspired by Jesus to love? The question is, are we actually doing that? Are we loving one another? Reaching out to those in need, not just within the community of faith. We do a pretty good job of that, of caring for people when needs arise and when we find out about it, when people are are willing to be vulnerable and let others know what's happening. This church has done a remarkable job of rallying around people and helping walk through these difficult valleys together. But what about those outside the walls? Are we caring for the poor and the sick? Are we visiting the prisoner? Are we, are we creating space for when the prisoner gets out of prison to be welcome into our community? 
Do we invest our lives in those who are strangers, sojourners, immigrants, refugees? Do we intentionally involve widows and orphans into our life and include them who have lost some significant people in their lives so that they don't have to feel that they're all alone? You see, the end of Jesus' last week of life can have an incredible impact on us if we're willing to listen. At Louisville Presbyterian Seminary in the stairwell leading up to the chapel, you'll find these words by Dr. George Dewey Carter, the former director of field education. It's not enough to profess. We have to practice. It's not enough to talk. We have to do. It's not enough to promise. We have to embody that promise. It's not enough to say, ain't it awful? We have to get close enough to get hurt. That's why, that's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. That's why he turned the temple upside down, because the people weren't living this out in their lives. May we allow the message to take root and bear fruit in us, in this congregation, and this community. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.